0: This is the Vashi Capello Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Just a few minutes past the top of the hour. It is Monday, December 18th, one exact week until Christmas. I hope you had a wonderful weekend. Still a lot of news on the go. uh, And so we're going to start right there with a quick rundown of what you can expect this afternoon and why we're covering it. The Rundown. I'm going to start off with some news that transpired actually here in the nation's capital over the weekend that has some far reaching consequences. The RCMP say a youth in Ottawa has been arrested and they've charged that youth with terrorism related offenses. Uh, because the youth was targeting, uh, in relation, they said, targeting Jewish people. Uh, The Mounties say that the young person was arrested Friday and was charged with facilitating terrorist activity by communicating instructional material related to an explosive substance. Uh, There's a further charge added to that youth with knowingly instructing a person to carry out terrorist activity against Jewish persons. Now, the police aren't releasing any more information about the suspect. They say they can't because of their age, but they did note in the press release associated with this that they've arrested five young people on terrorism-related offenses since June of 2023. Uh, Here's Sarah Buchtel, uh, the Vice President of Community Building and Interim CEO at the Jewish Federation of Ottawa, talking about how incidents like this showcase Uh, kind of the degree to which online hate can and has been allowed to fester, and she's calling for more government action. Um, This particular incident shows that online hate has been allowed um, to fester, and we're calling on the government to take immediate and effective action to combat online hate. And I know it's complicated, and I know they're trying for a very long time to do this, but now is the time for them to act. The mayor of Ottawa also weighed in. Have a listen to Mark Sutcliffe.
2: I'm grateful to the police for having averted this, to the RCMP and its partners for having done everything possible to uh, avoid this, what could have been a a very horrible and horrific incident. Uh, But it is concerning that, that this type of event was being planned here in our city.
1: So we have been talking about, over the last number of weeks, an increase in anti-Semitism uh, in Canada. Uh, we're also, of course, talking about that in the context, the greater context of the war in the Middle East. And we've got a really important conversation to play with, play for you, I should say, in a few moments with the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie. Uh, she recently, of course, the, the country recently cast a vote in favor of a, a humanitarian ceasefire at the UN. So I'm going to kind of question her on that position and uh, the reason that Canada has taken that position. That interview is coming up, the first part of it, in just about a minute. I do want to also tell you about another very uh, significant situation brewing in Quebec where emergency room doctors have written a letter to the government basically saying the situation in the ER is out of control. Here is Dr. Guillaume Lacombe, the vice president of the Association des Specialistes en Médecine d'urgence du Québec.
3: The situation just got worse and worse and maybe was put on ice. Right now, getting into a shift is having tens of patients waiting on
0: stretchers.
1: I know that situation won't be foreign to anyone listening across the country, but it does appear to be especially punctuated in Quebec. I know we have many listeners in Montreal. You want to stay tuned just before the top of the next hour in which we're going to talk to an emergency room doctor about the situation and what he thinks the government should be doing about it. That's coming up. Like I mentioned, though, we do want to get to our conversation with Melanie Jolie. It's a two-parter. Uh, on the war in the Middle East, and then also whether or not the IRGC in Iran should be designated a terrorist uh, entity. We're going to start off with part one. I started off by asking the minister why Canada cast a vote in favour of an unconditional ceasefire.
4: Well, first and foremost, what we did, and we've been saying it for now a couple of weeks the violence must stop. And we saw also that the humanitarian pause helped because hostages, nearly half of the hostages, Vashi, were able to uh, be released, and also more humanitarian aid was able to get in Gaza. And so we came up with this important statement with Australia and with New Zealand, where we said that uh, we needed to have a sustainable humanitarian ceasefire, which was conditional on hostages being released, of course, by humanitarian aid being able to allowed uh, in Gaza and at the same time also foreign nationals including Canadians being able to uh, get out of Gaza. We've also said that Hamas being a terrorist organization should not be involved in any future governance of Gaza because we believe that there is a path towards a two-state solution and we need to make sure that we get to that two-state solution process.
1: That statement you released though, as you mentioned, makes a ceasefire, predicates it on those conditions associated with Hamas. However, at the UN, that's not what happened. There were amendments put forward that stipulated those conditions. Canada supported them, but ultimately the UN voted them down. Your government still decided to support the resolution, which was free of any conditions. You did support a vote. You voted yes for an unconditional ceasefire why did you not just abstain from that vote so
4: We also registered an explanation of vote, along with our vote, which included the conditions which I mentioned. So that is why our position at the UN is clear. We also worked with many other countries, including, of course, Australia and New Zealand, which had come up with the statement to make sure that we had the same type of vote. And we voted also uh, along 153 countries that supported it. We believe that the next steps should be clear in terms of what can be sustainable peace in the region for too long we haven't had the right parties at the table to give the right credibility for the creation of a Palestinian state living side by side in peace and also security with the Israeli state
1: and i do want to ask you about the feasibility of a two state solution but on the vote just because you say canada's position is clear doesn't make it so this vo- you could have abstained from that vote because of your preference to see conditionality attached to Hamas but you didn't. Canada made a very distinct decision to vote differently than it has in the past when confronted with the same issue. Are you saying that you don't support an unconditional
4: ceasefire but you did vote for one? I'm saying that we've been clear in terms of calling for a sustainable humanitarian ceasefire uh, with conditions. I've also I think that we have to take stock of the situation evolving uh, Vashi, the UN Secretary General did something that was uh that hadn't been done since the seventies last week when he called and triggered Article ninety nine of the UN Charter, calling what was happening in Gaza a humanitarian catastrophe. And so as a country that believes in multilateralism, we have to take stock of that. And that's why we wanted to make sure that we had a clear position. At the same time, we know very much that This conflict has been a very difficult one to address with many, many subtleties, and that is why we did an explanation of vote.
1: Is it Article 99 that changed the parameters or what informed your ultimate decision because there have been calls from those multilateral organizations that you point to for a ceasefire as far back as October 18th when the Secretary General of the UN first called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. On November 6th, the World Health Organization called for an immediate humanitarian uh, ceasefire. That's an entire month ago. Is it just Article 99 that pushed Canada over to that side?
4: I think that the humanitarian pause was important, and the resum- which led to hostages being able to be released and humanitarian aid going in. And like I mentioned, the resumption of violence was absolutely devastating. Uh, and afterwards, we saw. Israel's article- resumption of violence or Hamas's both parties and of course we know that right now what Hamas is doing is not only holding hostages but using Palestinians as civilian shields also we know that there was sexual violence on October 7th they've been also continuing to attack Israel we know at the core of our foreign policy that first the right for Israel to exist has been at the core of it and also the protection of civilians. And so bearing that in mind, we decided to take this decision, which was not an easy one, but which was important as the conflict is pursuing. That's
1: part one of my interview with Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. In part two, in just a few moments, you'll hear a series of questions from me to her about whether or not it is the view of the Canadian government that Israel has breached international law in Gaza, and in particular in their response to the October 7th terror attacks. We'll also get on to whether or not the government is prepared to designate the IRGC in Iran as a terrorist entity. We're back with part two of Melanie Jolie next.
0: Welcome back to the Vashi Capello Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: It's 20 minutes past the top of the hour. You just heard part one of my interview with Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie on the war in the Middle East. Last week, Canada cast a vote at the UN's General Assembly in favor of a ceasefire, breaking longstanding tradition of voting with Israel at the UN. In part one, you heard the minister defend that decision. And in part two, I continue to ask what specifically changed. Is it the view, for example, of the Canadian government that Israel has breached international law in its response to Hamas's terror attack on October 7th? Have a listen.
4: The October 7 attacks were one of the biggest terrorist attacks in the world and definitely the biggest on Israel. And we saw and we heard uh, from different testimonies of, of hostages, of, of families of hostages, uh, it was absolutely horrific. And that's why it was important that. We stood up and we still do in terms of uh, supporting Israel's right to defend when being attacked. But how it does so matters. And the protection of civilians is extremely important. I've had difficult conversations with my counterpart on this very issue. Uh, and I'm not the only foreign minister of the G7 having had these conversations, including, of course, the Americans.
1: In those conversations, those difficult conversations you say you've had with your counterpart, for example, in yep. Israel, did you convey the view that you believe or that Canada believes Israel? Uh, Israel's response to those awful terror attacks has not been commensurate, or amounts to collective punishment, or that they have not protected civilians to the degree they should. All of which would amount to a breach of international law. Because you didn't answer the specific question, which was whether it is the government's view that Israel has breached international law, and thus that informs the vote you took at the UN.
4: Well, there will be, of course, a lot of work being done by different organizations on fact-finding, and of course we will hold uh, perpetrators accountable, and especially, of course, Hamas. Uh, and I been clear on this, on the question of having these difficult uh, conversations, the protection of civilians. Of course, Fashi, of course we've been having these conversations. I've had it with my counterpart, I've had it also uh, with uh, many colleagues. And we have many statements of the G7 calling for the protection of civilians. But
1: does that mean, de facto, you believe civilians are not being protected? That Israel is not doing everything it can to avoid hurting or killing civilians?
4: Well. We, you've heard what the G7 has mentioned, which is of course the protection of civilian and the respect of international humanitarian law needs to be re, uh, the, needs to be at the core of Israel's reaction. And why do we say it? We've said it because we believe that more needs to be done. And indeed, so no, you don't needs, believe
1: that they're doing everything they can to protect civilians?
4: I think that more needs to be done. We're at now at this point, nearly at 19,000 civilians, mainly women and children, 70 percent being women and children that have been uh that that have died and so you see in the statement that has been signed by us by australia and also by new zealand that we call for that and we also believe that um you know hamas as a terrorist organization uh, is a threat to israel it is definitely a threat to the region it is a threat to the world and so that's why we want to make sure that as we continue the diplomatic conversations about peace and stability in the region, they can't be at the table. They can be part of the future governance of Gaza.
1: Israel, though, says it's in a fight for its existence. You recognize that Israel has a right of to course. defend its existence. Yeah. Is it your view? I- I'm still a little confused. You-, you want them to do more to protect civilians. They argue that they are and that... This is them defending their existence, defending themselves
4: against a terror attack. Do you not think that is the case? I profoundly believe that as a state, they have to do what is absolutely necessary to abide by international law. And we will continue to have these tough conversations. And that's why we sent a clear message at the UN this week.
1: I wanted to also ask you about the feasibility, uh, as you mentioned, uh, your, your efforts to pursue and help uh, the region pursue a two-state mm-hmm. solution. Uh, the ambassador of Israel to the UK most recently in an interview this week said it's impossible, said that, that you know Israel is not in favor of a two-state solution. Uh, there are members of Prime Minister Netanyahu's cabinet who have expressed similar sentiments, perhaps even taking it further at points. I looked at the most recent public opinion polling of both Palestinians and Israelis. Only about a third of them support at this point a two-state solution do you actually believe one is feasible
4: there's no other choice and there's no other path and uh, we need to have a constructive government in Israel that believes in the two-state solution and we need to have the right Palestinian voices which are not Hamas that believe in it um, it's been 30 years that uh, we've been talking about it but there's been a lot of actions to undermine it including on both sides And I think as Western leaders, we have to reckon that we haven't done a good job enough to bring this solution to the table, talking about it, but not enough actions. Do you think think
1: the possibility of it, though, after what has occurred over the last two months, is diminished even relative to where it was prior to the start, prior to Hamas's initial attack?
4: You know what, Vashi? I think the contrary. Really? Why? I think because this... This conflict is so difficult for Israel, so difficult for the Palestinians, so difficult for the world, not only in Canada, because we've seen the rise of anti-Semitism, the rise of Islamophobia, and just the rise of tension. But that's the case here. That's the case in Europe that's the case south of a border that's the case in Arab countries we are in amidst an international security crisis so we need to take a chance on peace you mentioned
1: for peace to have a chance Hamas cannot be at the table for those discussions Iran funds and arms Hamas yeah why does your government refuse to list the IRGC as a terrorist entity
4: so I think just back going back on Hamas It is also very important that Hamas lay down its weapons. That's also part of our approach when it comes to Hamas. Uh, When it comes to Iran, we know that Iran is a state sponsor of terror. Um, And because there's clear links between their different proxies, including, uh, of course, we know Hamas. uh, that being said, we have one of the most stringent and uh, and and tough approach in the world when it comes to Iran. But I'm committed to working, particularly with the Iranian community, and uh, particularly also with the PS752 families, which I've been in touch with a lot uh, on this issue, because I know that the, f- the 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 community is fearful of the RGc. Yeah,
1: they are very much, and yeah. it's it's actually their. Um, Their conversations with me, their ask of me informing the question to you about why your government has, in the years even since PS752, but now, especially in light of what's happened in the Middle East, refused to list them as a terrorist entity. You, in 2018, voted on a motion in favor in Parliament, in the House of Commons, to do just that. Five years later, you're the person who could make it happen, yeah. and you're not. The community feels your government has not ever given them a specific answer about why not. Can you provide one right now?
4: I think that we have to work on the best tools to do it. I think that we have to, meanwhile, continue to uh, assure the, the, the protection of our diplomats, our military that can be in the region. And that's why I had a very good conversation with key uh, Iranian. Uh, community uh, leaders here in Canada over the last weeks in Ottawa and we'll do more in the coming year on this issue. Does
1: that mean that you're worried about retaliation in Iran if you were to do list the IRGC?
4: I can not comment on that but what I can tell you when it comes to diplomacy reciprocity is always an issue but that being said what I can tell you is we have the right have the right tools to address this issue and I'm committed to working with my colleagues at Public Safety and Justice on developing the right tools.
1: Does that mean that you have not ruled out listing it as a terrorist entity.
4: Clearly we will always have one of the toughest approach against Iran in the world.
1: I don't know what that means. I know that you've done a lot of things that I wouldn't intimate that you haven't because you've done a ton of sanctions. There are still according to global news 700
4: people with ties to the
1: regime in Canada. What I'm telling and, you and you're is not, that but you're not it, saying
4: whether or not you you I'm just asking if you've ruled no, no, it out or course, not. No, of course and I understand your question. What I'm telling you is that we've done a lot but we can do more and we'll do more. I take so that I'll that have more to say in the coming weeks on so this So I issue. take that it's not impossible? I'm telling you that, of course, we'll be working on the com- with the community on this, and I think that we have to be creative to develop new approaches and new tools that would permit government to do what is needed. Okay,
1: Minister, I'll leave it there. I appreciate your time <laughs> as always. Thank, Thank you very you, much. Thank you. It's Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. That last line of questioning around the IRGC, that's the wing of the army in Iran that is essentially constitutionally supposed to defend the Islamic Republic. It is classified as a terrorist entity in the United States. It was done so by then President Trump. But in May of 2022, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden uh, reinforced that classification. We'll wait to see in the new year if Canada does the same. I'm going to take a quick commercial break. On the other end of that break, the head of this country's Navy is sounding an alarm. He's here next.
0: Welcome back to the Vashi Capello Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: It is 25 minutes before the top of the hour. I want to start off this segment taking a closer look at the armed forces in this country. We've talked about budget cuts over the last number of months and sort of a a lack of readiness. A video recently from... The commander of the Navy, this country's Navy, has gone viral for exactly those reasons. Basically, in that video, he outlines the shortages that the Navy is facing and says that the RCN is in a critical state because of ongoing and punctuated and pronounced, really, staffing shortages. Uh, It's so bad, he says they're at risk of not being able to staff new ships, which are slated for delivery starting next year. Here's my conversation with Vice Admiral Angus Topshi about that.
2: So the goal was to communicate internally to the Navy. We're going through a tough period right now. We've got to make a number of changes internally and it was really a call to action to my team to sort of say look we've got to focus on these things. We've shown in the past that we can get through these difficult periods so we need to do so again and there's some key measures we need to take to do that.
1: Was there any notice provided to the government or to the ministry that you would be putting that message out?
2: Um, the government was well aware of the message. It's not. It's completely consistent with everything that I've been communicating throughout. I feel as though this minister the previous minister have both listened and respected to the views that we have. And it's a matter of, you know, the Navy needs to be able to continue to deliver for Canada. And this is how we're going to get about doing it.
1: Do you feel that it, that the Navy's ability to do so is currently jeopardized?
2: It is challenged. We're short people. We're short about 20% people. And so we really need to focus on attracting, recruiting, and training the best Canada has to offer. We have some great opportunities within the Navy. I think it's a great life. It's taken me around the world to every continent except Antarctica. Um, we have adventures every day, and we have to serve the country with a real purpose. So I think it's a great opportunity. Unfortunately, we just, we're just we not getting in front of enough Canadians to, to get them to see the, the benefits and the opportunities that come with serving in the Navy.
1: Given the, the sort of uh, severity of the issue and the degree to which you are short, do you anticipate that personnel problems could be fixed in time for delivery, for example, of the new ships that we are anticipating?
2: Yeah, so one of the things that's in the video is a talk about how we're going to reshape our entire focus on human resources, right? So how we divide up all of the jobs and tasks within the Navy into our various different occupations, how we do all of our training from initial entry training through to the 10 to 15 year mark in a career. How do we make sure that we can accelerate that as quickly as possible to get the sailors that we need at the levels of experience that we need, but to do that in a manner that's safe and ensures that they are fully qualified and ready for the jobs they need to take on.
1: Do I take from that that you do think it's possible to have those ships properly manned for lack of a better term?
2: Yeah, I do. Uh, it is. So it's not a small task, and it begins by making sure we bring in enough people. And so we need at least 1,200 people to join the Navy every year. And we've launched the Naval Experience Program, which is a one-year program. It's kind of like a, a paid internship, $42,000 to join the Navy, get a sense of everything the Navy has to offer, do the regular eight weeks of basic training, followed by four weeks of Navy-specific training, and then an exposure to everything on both coasts in Canada, all of the different jobs, and to see if that's the right fit for someone. And at the same time, we get a look at those people who have joined and see if they're the right fit for us. So are their values? and ethics aligned with ours. Um, So we've got 100 people recruited through that program so far. We haven't hit the one-year mark where we'll really start to see how many of them are interested in continuing to serve, but we're hoping to keep about 80% of them.
1: So 100 people out of the 1,200 that you need every year, what else would you recommend to fill that gap?
2: So the Canadian Forces Recruiting Centre is still the bulk of our recruiting, so they're still trying to deliver the 1,200 people that we need. The Naval Experience Program is just uh, a pilot project to see if there's other ways of attracting people. But
1: I guess what other way I'm asking sort of against the backdrop, of, the, the the stuff that's in place now yeah. isn't cutting it. So what more would you like to see done outside of that one program?
2: So I, I think we need to look internally, and we are looking internally, to make sure our processes are as efficient as possible. So some of the things, are common enrollment medical standards, so the, the medical... Uh, grade you need to reach to join the military is actually higher than what you need to continue to serve in the military. So that's one of the things that the Surgeon General and his team are looking at to make sure that it reflects where we're at right now. Has it reflected the current changes in medical practice? So there are some things that we assessed a while back were not consistent with service that actually we probably can manage. They're not the same sort of chronic conditions today that they were in the past. So someone who has those probably could continue to serve.
1: You, you mentioned also in this video that it isn't unique to the Navy that you're dealing with issues around personnel, right? That the armed forces, that the armed forces as well as the air forces are, are facing similar issues. We've been waiting almost t- two years. I think it's 20 months now for a defense policy review, which is, in part, we've been told, going to articulate uh, more specifics around a strategy to address that. Have you been, has your input been uh, given to that? Like, what what do you think we should and can anticipate out of that whenever it does come?
2: So I think the defense policy update will re- reset what the government's position is on defense and what exactly they want us to really focus on. The bigger things are a lot of these issues we need to already be addressing ourselves. Mm-hmm. We have these levers within our control, within the Canadian Armed Forces, and so we need to be making sure that we're using all of those, that we're changing the way we do business to attract and, tr- and recruit Canadians faster.
1: The minister was asked about your... Video of uh, Defense Minister Bill Blair, and he said that. Uh the exact quote is I wouldn't define the situation is dire at all. How do you respond to that?
2: So if you re- remember the first part of the video is that we may fail to meet. Our intention is to continue to meet our commitments under what we call the force posture and readiness. The number of ships and platforms that the Canadian Navy is required to have ready and be able to deploy annually. Our goal is to meet those. The c- point of the video is to say look there's a couple of things. If they don't break right we're going to struggle to do that. So we need to make sure that we're focused intently on those things and we continue to deliver.
1: Has there been a year in recent memory where you've been able to recruit 1,200 people to join the Navy? No. So why do you think it's possible going forward?
2: Because we're trying new things. So we are reforming our recruiting approach. The Naval Experience Program is showing us that we're attracting different people. And so one of the things we've seen, it used to be that people walking into a recruiting center, only 6% of people expressed any desire to join the Navy. Now we're seeing 20% of the people walking into recruiting centers are saying they're interested in the Navy. We used to attract somewhere around 6 or 7% visible minorities and indigenous Canadians. Now we're attracting 20%. So we know we're tapping into new groups. And I think we're gonna continue to see that. So we just need to get the word out that this is a great opportunity for Canadians. And
1: are you convinced, you mentioned you have the levers, am I to infer from that 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 you feel like the Navy on its own or the armed forces on its own, the military on its own, separate from government investment, government initiative, can accomplish what you're setting out?
2: So no one would ever say no to more money, but the thing is that we have a lot of things that we can control ourselves, and until we've exhausted everything we can do, uh, we need to do all of those things.
1: More money is one thing, less money is what the, the armed forces is confronted with now what is your uh, your thought what are your thoughts on that
2: so it depends on how you look at it so the capital budget is actually growing we're in the midst of the largest recapitalization in the Canadian Navy's history in peacetime and so the overall defense budget is actually going up it's the various different aspects of it are being reduced
1: so you don't feel any pinch.
2: So, Again, I can always use more money, but the thing is that my job is to take the resources I'm given Mm -hmm. and meet the requirements of Canada with those resources.
1: Okay, Vice Admiral, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today. All right, thank you. That's Vice Admiral Angus Topshi. He's the commander of the Canadian Navy. Here's a little sample of what he said in that video we referenced off the top that went viral on YouTube.
2: The RCN is in a critical state, with many occupations experiencing shortages at 20% and higher. There's a simple reason for this. Despite their very best efforts, CFRG has not delivered the required intake for the RCN for over 10 years.
1: So hard not to understate, I guess, the situation that the Navy faces. As you heard the Vice Admiral say, they're short 1,200 people a year. And the programs that are in place, while innovative, are only getting them part of the way there. So that'll be something for us to keep our eye on, particularly as whole new fleets of ships start to be delivered as early as next year. Uh, they're in jeopardy right now of not even being able to staff those. I also want to let you know in the next segment, we're going to talk about a situation that is, I know, very familiar to many of us right across the country, sort of packed ERs and a really long wait to get seen at an ER, not really an availability of urgent care. Well, it's an especially pronounced situation right now in Quebec. Have a listen to the head of the Association of ER Doctors in Quebec and how he describes it right now.
3: The situation just got worse and worse and maybe was put on ice. Right now, getting into a shift is having tens of patients waiting on
0: stretchers.
1: That's Dr. Guillaume Lacombe. He is my guest in the next segment. You heard him talk about how many patients, for example, are waiting on stretchers or how long people are waiting in Quebec right now to get into NER. That association that Dr. Lacombe is the head of or one of the the vice presidents of Actually, sent a letter directly to Quebec's health minister saying that the situation is out of control. Dr. Lacombe will be my next guest to talk a little bit about what exactly that means um, and how the government can go about addressing it. We're back in just a moment with that conversation.
0: Welcome back to the Vashi Capello Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The nurses are working hard. Um, They're trying to maintain the best care possible for their patients. But uh, we've been swamped.
1: That's Naveed Hussein, a nurse at the McGill University Health Center's mental health mission, talking there about the uh, general level of, you know, as he said, swamped, of overcrowding in that area. And those comments come after the Association of Doctors in Charge of Quebec's Emergency Room sent a letter to the province's health minister sounding their own alarm, saying the situation in those ERs is, quote, out of control. The vice president of the Association des Specialistes en Médecins d'urgence du Québec, uh, Dr. Guillaume Lacombe, is here now to talk about that letter and the impetus for it. Dr. Lacombe, pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for making the time. Thanks to you. Uh, why, uh, sir, did, did the, the doctors in this association feel like it had gotten to the point where you needed to specifically write a letter to the health minister about it?
3: So, first of all, the letter actually comes from the uh, Regroupement des Chefs d'Urgence, which is a, a group of the emergency department chiefs all around, around the province. So, um, they actually wrote that letter because the situation has been getting worse and worse. It's been, you know, it's, it's been bad for months on end and even years. A year, But uh, in the last few months, it's really got worse. And now we've seen in the last few weeks, uh, we've seen cases of patients dying in waiting rooms, uh, which were actually covered in the media. And the situation is not good. And uh, a lot of people were wondering what was actually being done by the government at this moment to address the situation.
1: And, and I'll talk in a second and ask you some questions about what what can be done. But I wondered if we could also sort of for our listeners who live in other parts of the country who, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's dealing um, right now. I don't think it's a foreign story to anybody, the idea that the ERs yeah. are full. But what what specifically are you seeing? Um, and, and And how would you describe, for example, in your ER, what it's like right now?
3: So I mean, right now I'd say a normal day is about 180 to 200 percent of occupation uh, on the stretchers. So that means that we have 33 stretchers on, you know, uh, t- t- uh but we got like 60, 65 patients um, waiting to be admitted or, or having treatment on stretchers. But that's that's not accounting for the waiting room, which is. Uh, it's as it's been full. It's never been that full. So we, you know, you get in a shift, you get forty, fifty patients waiting to be seen, and that's very hard for everyone working and doing their best. Because uh, in that situation, it's hard to make sure that uh, all the patients get the optimal care they deserve.
1: I can only imagine. Um, and and is it is it primarily because uh, a lot of people are there who can't find care elsewhere, or is it that there are just more volumes of more really sick people?
3: So there's really many factors that will factor in that situation. So first of all, a lot of people have no access or have a difficult access to primary care physician or a first line. You know, like if you get, I don't know, back problems, you don't know where to go. Your your primary care physician is not available if you have one. Um, So a lot of people decide to go to the ER because they can't find access somewhere else. But that's only part of the problem because that will address most of the waiting room. But that doesn't explain the situation on the stretcher, the patient waiting to be admitted, which usually they need bigger care. So the other problem is most of the hospital, mainly in Montreal and around the city, are actually full. So, you know, if the hospital right. has no more beds, what happens is that the patient in the ER waiting to get admitted, admitted they will be waiting in the ER longer. So it's mostly uh, the congestion in the emergency department is usually or is mainly a congestion of the hospital.
1: And what is it like as, as somebody who I'm sure, you know, spent their career and their schooling, um, y- you know, wanting to help people when they need it to kind of be confronted with this situation day in and day out? I can imagine that it would be really tough on, on your morale. So I think it's
3: been working on the morale of everyone, the nurses, the doctors, the, you know, physical therapists, everyone that works in the ER, or even in the hospital right now. It's very hard to keep um, in mind the fact that we're trying to do our best. You know, when you hear stories of patients that for a reason or another, I don't want to get into it, but died and it was not, uh, you know, it might have been preventable. We don't know. There's going to be, you know, know, everyone's going to have a look at that. But what I'm saying is that when you're doing your best and you feel that even by doing your best, you cannot uh, cure everyone or you cannot do as much as you would like that's very frustrating for everyone.
1: Yeah, it's very I imagine it's very disheartening. I thought yeah, what also true. stood out to me in the letter was um the sort of assertion that or the sense that that doctors have that the government has been consumed with a piece of legislation that is meant to reform the healthcare system but has at the expense basically of uh, the attention that, that the doctors feel should have been paid to this kind of situation and, and the factors that you mentioned that are driving it. Is that your sense as well?
3: Well, we have the feeling that the last few months the government has been really worried about the new uh, law bill, the Projet de loi 15, which will address the new healthcare system and uh, reform of the healthcare system. But uh, we, have, we have the feeling that maybe the different Levels of government, they've not been as worried about the emergency department situation. Even though the, the regroupement des chefs d'urgence has addressed the minister a few times, trying mm-hmm. to contact him, trying to have a meeting with him, which was not, uh, which was not, did not happen. So even though there's been uh, many cries of alarm and people trying to, you know, ring a bell and saying it's, it's not going well, we have the feeling um, that the, it was not uh, heard properly.
1: That must be very frustrating as well. Yes, exactly. And and yeah. if they if they were to listen, if they were to take that meeting, what are some concrete things that that you would advise the government they should pursue to to try and address the issue?
3: But one of the thing that has been done in the last few in the last year, there's been a crisis cell that was put in place by the government a bit more than a year ago. One of it's like a it's a team of um, doctors and um, and. People organize you know a different level of government uh, meeting together every week to find solution for the uh, crisis in the emergency bar- department a few of those solutions were, were found and were um, um, put in place but the problem that we have now it's uh, it's not clear which hospital have actually put in place the solution what, that were uh, brought out by the gov- by the, the crisis so so it's hard to know, which hospitals are really implanting or you know are putting in place the solution that were that were brought forward? So there's no, not, I'm not, I don't want to say policing, but that there hasn't been any uh, overview of which solutions were put in place at which point and where. So it's hard to know um, actually right now what's been done. So we want to make sure that government looks at the hospitals at the different level to make sure that what was brought forward is actually put in place. Because so, at the end of the day, if you want to know if the solutions are working, we want to make sure that they're put in place.
1: Yeah, you, if you don't know if they're in place, you can't measure if they're effective.
3: Yeah, exactly. That's right.
1: And, and, and I just have about 30 seconds left. Anything else that you think they would be uh, you know, smart to, to look at right now?
3: Well, we want to make sure also that the patients that don't need to be staying in the hospital are not staying in the hospital. What I mean is that right now there's about 13 to 15% of the beds in the hospital, uh, usually mainly in the area of Montreal, that are being um, um, occupied by patients that have their leave from the hospital, but they have nowhere else to go. So see, they or primary, you know, a a, a, a new, um, how do you say, uh, uh, for uh, Healthcare uh, healthcare services or a new uh, CHSFB or a long nursing home, they yes. don't have place in nursing homes. So we want to make sure that those patients that are actually using a bed without a uh, medical reason uh, can, be brought in, can be brought in a good place so that we have new beds available for the patients waiting in the
1: ER. Dr. Lacombe, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for making the time for this conversation and, and for all the work that you do. Thank you. Thanks to you. That's Dr. Guillaume Lacombe, the vice president of the Association des Spécialistes en Médecins d'Urgence du Québec. So he's the vice president of the Association of Emergency Room Doctors in Quebec. They're sounding a, a big alarm. Text me what you think about that, 71010. We're back with the Daily Debrief panel next.
0: This is the Vashi Capello Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
5: This conservative leader has no long-term vision for this country. Is that prime minister that is burning a hole in the pockets of Canadians?
2: Higher interest rates are painful. Credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen.
5: Why do we need a special rapporteur? What does this rapporteur even do? It sounds like a fake job. It's not helping Canadians have confidence in our democracy, and electoral system,
2: and it's why it really cries out for a public inquiry.
1: Just a little sampling, uh, a week away from Christmas, of the joy of the last year politically. Lots of highs and lows for political parties and lots of big political stories. Let's talk about that with the Daily Debrief panel. The Daily Debrief. With me this afternoon, Tim Powers, chairman of SUMA Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data. Kathleen Monk, principal owner of Monk & Associates and former director of communications to Jack Layton and Amanda Alvaro, co-founder and president of Pomp and Circumstance. Basically, my three most favorite people. Hi, guys.
5: Reunion
1: tour? <laughs> I'm so happy to have all three of you here to talk about what the biggest, in your view, what the biggest political story of 2023. Since uh, it's Amanda's first time here, we're going to start with you, Amanda. What was the biggest story of 2023 from where you sit?
6: Well, thank you. I think for me, the biggest story is also the saddest story, and that is uh, the story politically of sort of the rise of the Conservative Party and uh, the seeming fall of the Liberal Party over a series of months. So this really downward trajectory of public support for the Liberal Party and maybe more specifically for the Liberal Party leader, um, while well, we saw at the beginning of the year a virtual unknown, Pierre Polyev, really rise up in the polls and take his party with him almost to Harper. Levels. And we can talk about the myriad of issues and factors that went into that obviously, high inflation and high interest rates and cost of living. But the ability, really, of the conservatives from a communication standpoint to hone into the angst and anxiety that people were feeling around pocketbook issues and affordability issues and peg that on the shoulders of the Liberal Party and probably more specifically Trudeau. Has just turned into an incredible rise of support for them. Uh, so that, to me, I think is is one of the biggest stories of the year. And as we end the year, how can the Liberal Party turn their fortunes around and convince longtime Liberal voters that they can come back to the Progressive Party and that they have the vision to lead the party into the next election?
1: Tim, your firm Abacus in May had the Tories and the the Liberals two points apart. Uh, there now, there's been a bit of a swing at the end of the year, but essentially, there's still double digits now. B- between the two parties, do you think that is the biggest story of the year?
5: It's hard to say it isn't, uh, because to Amanda's point, Pierre has Polyev has basically driven the political domestic political agenda uh, for the last six months or so, uh, and the, the Liberals have, for whatever reasons, been, been been unable to respond to all that. I mean, Vashi, you you would have been hard-pressed a decade ago to find anybody beyond Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party who would believe that Pierre Polyev was now, albeit still two years away, 18 months away, on the cusp of becoming prime minister and having right now, again, it can change, this degree of popularity uh, with with enough Canadians to make that possible. Um, You have to give him credit, I think, for... The work that he's done, Amanda, talked about some of the things he's he's managed to do in terms of connecting with people. And, yes, he's had some mistakes, particularly a few in the last couple of weeks. But by and large, um, he has had a almost error-free year. And that's, uh, that's unusual. He's got a long way to go yet. Uh, but I think you it would have – if I have told you uh, last year this time that Pierre Polly on. December, what are we, 18th, 2023, would have a, at, a, at a minimum a 10-point lead over the federal liberals, you would have thought I was into the beer I brew.
1: <laughs> and I would have been maybe right a little bit. But uh, <laughs> Ka- Kathleen, do you, do you think that's true? Like, I, I think, you know, Tim has a point. Like, who would have, I think people who support him would believe that they they would be where they are. But I'm not sure everyone would have been convinced of that a year ago. And it's something that's, you know, you can't really deny now.
7: No, for sure. He's had a first great, what is it, 18 months as leader. Uh, he's really uh, done a great job and gets top marks for that. But I think when you look at your question, you know, what's the top you know, the key word in the sentence is what's the top political story or what's the top story? Because if you're looking from a political lens, from those of us who are all geeks, who who watch federal politics day in and day out, sure, you might, you'd have to say that Pierre's story and the drop of the Liberals was was the top um, headline. But from a Canadian's perspective, average folks living their lives day in and day out, I think for sure the top story's got to be the affordability crisis overall. I mean, they're not talking about uh, Pierre Paul but they are talking about the cri- the cost of a cauliflower or how their box of cereal is now a lot smaller but costs a lot more. So I think you know uh, you know I would defend that the top story, which then turned into a political story, was in fact the affordability crisis. So you know the the concerns that Canadians had around the cost of groceries or or housing for sure, or even the cost of gas, led to some really interesting political machinations. And Amanda spoke to that. And how Pierre Polyev has been able to kind of like take advantage of the anger and the frustration. But it was also really interesting to see, you know, just how those grocery store CEOs got called onto the mat three times this year. I mean, that was pretty remarkable. And uh, and so I, I still think that's the top story because despite the fact that those CEOs kind of defended uh their profit uh lines and, and said they were following the book, I think Canadians were so angry that they demanded that their politicians act. And so whether it was calling them to committee or doing things like getting the GST rebate uh, to help folks with their groceries, even the new competition uh, uh, legislation that's being put
1: forward. These were all driven by Canadians' anger around the affordability crisis. My sense, though, from a political perspective, I think there's like a huge nexus between what happened in the polls and that cost of living Mm -hmm. crisis that Kathleen references, Amanda. My sense is that, you know, whether Kathleen may say it's like the, the Tories taking advantage of it. You may agree. They 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 acknowledge the severity of the issue much earlier than the government did, though. And it seems to me that that informed a lot of the level of support that ended up going the Tories way in, and away from the Liber- Liberals. So my question to you is um, mm-hmm. the Liberals have started to try and counter that, certainly with a lot of announcements, but until recently didn't see a lot of traction. What What do you anticipate from them it, going forward in that vein?
6: yeah and so a couple of things obviously while the government doesn't set the interest rates you do see a big huge correlation in the data between those rate hikes and the declining public support for the liberals at the same time and we know this isn't just a trudeau government problem right this is a problem for any incumbent government around the world who are dealing with these issues at the same time because it's much easier to place the blame very squarely on the shoulders of the governing party when people are feeling that angst at home i think the Liberals' challenge was that while the Conservatives had a very focused message on Trudeau and on affordability uh, the Liberals really had a challenge with getting their communication track in order but I think that they have a few things going for them right now they have um, this will be super inside baseball but a new comms person so they're investing in communications and I would expect that that will help right the train in terms of how they're putting information out into the world and I think obviously we'll probably talk about 2024 but as interest rates hopefully come down and we see inflation come down and an economic outlook improve, that'll give them a bit of breathing room to be able to talk about issues that Canadians may be more open to hearing.
1: Tim, what do you think about that?
5: uh, Look, I think you write off the Liberals at your peril. And I think, yes, uh, some new thinking in in the government might be helpful, particularly in the communication sphere. But I think they have structural challenges beyond all of that. And and look, let's be clear. I think we're all waiting to see, despite what he currently says, the prime minister, that is, whether he's going to be leading them into the next election, because that will define a lot of what the battle will be about. You saw some of that itself out in Parliament this week, the end of the progressive agenda versus, you know, the disruption agenda as being framed by the government of Polyev. So there's a lot of moving parts here, Vashi, that one poor comms director newly appointed in the prime minister's office can't be blamed for or expected to fix in the same vein.
1: Okay, we're going to continue the conversation after a short commercial break. The Daily Debrief panel is back in a moment.
0: Welcome back to the Vashi Capello Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. We have been
2: so fiscally responsible over the past years. We have room to respond
5: if there is no more to do. This is someone who's doubled our national debt. He's added more debt than all previous Prime Ministers combined. We know that people are struggling with the cost of food. And we know that the Liberal plan to ask CEOs nicely was a failure. We're in solution mode. uh, I've been telling the CEOs to meet me in Ottawa next week. We're going to have a focus on home designs that are cost-effective, labour-efficient, and energy-efficient. Housing costs have doubled. Rent has doubled. The needed mortgage payment and down payment for a home have doubled.
1: Just a little sampling, again, of an issue we were talking about in the last segment with the Daily Debrief panel, in particular, the degree to which the cost of living dominated political debate on Parliament Hill. I'm here with the panel, Amanda Alvaro, Kathleen Monk and Tim Powers, talking about how 2023 went, but also what we can expect in 2024. Uh, Kathleen, I'll just jump off kind of the last points that Amanda and Tim were making around The kinds of strategies you expect the parties to employ around cost of living, do you expect it to define those strategies to the degree it did in this year?
7: In 2024, yeah. uh, I think it might play a little bit of a lesser role, only because we are seeing inflation slowly tick down. And most predictions is that it will stay below three percent, somewhere between two and three uh, percent, going forward. So it might. And, and actually, we're even seeing some public opinion polls where folks are starting from leger. The folks are starting to feel a little bit better about their personal finances, which is good news. There's this the saying that's been coined uh, called the vibe session. People are having a <laughs> vibe about it being a. Recession. Session, and 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 actually that's been the problem that people have a more negative view of the economy and their own personal finances that may in some cases uh, not match up with reality. But they're saying actually the vibe session is turning a corner, which is good news. And so um I'm hoping for more positive economic news uh in 2024. Uh one of the challenges, of course, people are gonna have to face is there's something like 2.2 million people that are gonna have to renew their mortgages over the next couple of years. And that means they're gonna be facing those new high interest rates that have been jacked up over the last number of years from Tiff Macklin, our bank governor. And so hopefully we'll see those interest rates uh, come down a little bit uh, and to ease
1: that pain that folks have been been facing. Amanda, what do you think the biggest political story of next year will be?
6: I think that it'll be our favorite game, which is election speculation, (laughs) and whether or not the Liberal Party will see new leadership. Um, And uh, spoiler, I don't think they will, but I do think that that headline is going to continue to dominate. Mm -hmm. So there was a recent uh, Ipsos poll, and it said 70% of Canadians felt that uh, Trudeau should resign. So he has a lot of work to do, or the party has a lot of work to do to change that narrative. And again, I'm going to talk about communications for a minute, Um, not just because I'm in it, and I think it's the most (laughs) important role, but because uh, in politics it, it it is in many ways, and you see that whether it's you know a multi-million dollar rehabilitation campaign for Polyev's image in the form of ads, or these new fifteen-minute YouTube housing crisis videos, the conservatives' ability to kind of own the narrative and the agenda is what set them apart in 2023. So you can imagine the liberals kind of starting back a bit and them needing to make up some lost ground hopefully again the economy picks up and people find themselves in a better position with their own pocketbooks and at home so that they are a little more open to the liberals message
1: let me just quickly follow up before i bring in tim do you expect something like an ad like they haven't spent a lot of money on Mm -hmm. ads they've barely tested a few on facebook of all places like do you expect something bigger
6: I do. And I think, well, I don't think that one person makes a difference, and I mentioned this in in the last segment about, but I do think the fact that they hired an individual to come in to really put an emphasis on communication signals that they're trying to ready uh, that ship. And I think that's critically important. It's been one of the biggest criticisms to the party. They know that they have to play catch up with the Conservatives, and I imagine more dollars and more effort spent in that area.
1: So, Tim, there's going to be a lot of people listening who say, I think it's not just a communications problem it's a substance problem where do you fall in that debate
5: yeah it's a systemic problem as i said before it's not just about changing the message or the messenger i think eight years different policies different challenges it's more than just how you present yourself well that that is part of it but i have a slight divergence uh from from my colleagues on the biggest story of the year i agree with amanda If if there is a leadership change in the Liberal Party, that will certainly dominate the news. But I think it's the global volatility and uncertainty. Kathleen talked about it from an economic perspective, but you know the the, the Israeli-Hamas conflict uh, war still goes on. The war in the Ukraine is still going on. Uh, our challenges with India. All of those dynamics create for the arguably the most precarious global situation we've had in decades, and it has been driving our domestic politics, particularly Israel, Hamas, and the Ukraine, over the last number of weeks. Those things, which we have very little control over, could again have a very pronounced influence, not just on Canada, but on the globe.
1: And I'll quickly follow up with you and then get to Kathleen, but you forgot to mention one of the big ones, the potential of another President Trump. Oh, ding, yes. Ding. Yes.
2: Yes. Definitely. I
1: told
5: you not <laughs> been on the beer yet. So I, had to pull that I mean, yeah, if that happens too, I, I, I'll be reinvest in my alcohol-free lifestyle by going heavily into it. No, not encouraging anybody to drink, but yeah, that that could be a, another wild card. Should the Grand Orange return to the national international
1: stage? I think even Kathleen, in the absence of a win from him, if he is the Republican nominee. Uh, We're in for a number of months where that will dominate a lot of the sort of politics, I think, here on the Hill even, and we've seen some indications of it lately where the liberals are calling uh, Pierre Polyev like a MAGA conservative, and and he's not even the nominee yet.
7: Yeah, and, and we saw statements from uh, the candidate Trump over the weekend that were really, really dangerous, basically calling immigrants to the United States uh, that they were infecting the, our bloodline. Um, and, and we saw not only the White House uh, reacting to that, but I can see in the future where other progressives in Canada will also react to him as candidate um, for the Republican primary, never mind his actual candidate for the president. Right. So the whole primary will continue all next. Next year for quarter one and quarter two, really, we're only going to know that he's officially the Republican candidate by about June, I think it is. And so the chaos and turmoil that we know Trump is so you know, s- successful at doing it, dominating the media and oh, airwaves, he'll do again. And that will definitely infect our politics here in Canada. But on a more positive note, I just want to squeeze in one thing. I think the most underrated story of 2023, if we can talk about that for a second, is really the story of the transition to a carbon neutral economy. Sounds boring, but think about the deals that were signed this year Volkswagen, Stellantis, renewed deal, right, with Ontario now in the game. The Sustainable J- uh, Jobs Act was pushed through that is actually in a long term going to be more interesting for our economy. We're looking forward for jobs and that transition away. There's the new battery plant too in Quebec. There's just lots of good news that we we should also focus on. I like
1: your positivity (laughs) in the holiday season. Really, I have 30 seconds. What's your prediction for the biggest story of 2024? For me? What's your prediction for the biggest story oh, of 2024? For sure. I think it's going
7: to be the economy still. I think it's going to be people okay. feeling the pain. And of course, you know, Trump just being Trump, you know, but uh, but uh, but I'm, I am going to focus on that positive. I want people to feel better in their bank accounts uh, and in their jobs. I'm hoping we don't see a recession. We don't see those hundreds of thousands of layoffs that were predicted, frankly, in the fall economic update with the uptick in unemployment. So
4: yeah.
7: I'm going to be more positive and hope for a great 2024 oh, for, my for myself
1: and for everyone. Well, well, what a perfect... Perfect note to end on. Uh, Happy holidays to all of you. Wishing you the best. And thank you all three of you for making time for the panel today. I appreciate it.
8: Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys.
1: Wonderful to talk again. Amanda Alvaro, Kathleen Monk, and Tim Powers, our Daily Debrief panel. What do you think about their predictions for 2024? Send me yours. You can text me anytime 71010 10, and i'll read off the best predictions in the fact check toward the end of the show up next we're going to focus on our holiday angel series we've got another amazing volunteer to spotlight this afternoon someone who's going above and beyond for their community. Uh, it's a great story you're going to want to stand by for. And if you have any great stories of your own, we've still got three days left of the show. We'll still be featuring holiday angels throughout the rest of this week. And you know the number to text. I just told you it's 71010. Send me not only your thoughts on the biggest political story of 2024 and what you think it's going to be, but also if you've got any great friends or volunteers in your life that you think deserve a national spotlight. We're back in a moment with one of them. Next.
0: Welcome back to the Vashi Capello Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: It's 25 minutes before the top of the hour. We are exactly one week away from Christmas, kind of all into the holiday season now. And it's a great opportunity for us here on the program to highlight some of the amazing people uh, right across this country who are doing uh, some really impactful things with their time, who are volunteering their time or helping out uh, large swaths of their community. And my next guest is no exception. We're going to get to our Holiday Angel. Holiday Angels. So we asked all of you to send in your suggestions for these amazing volunteers or these amazing people. And we have uh, gotten a lot of them, including today's guest. Jeffrey Ng is the Executive Director of the Gore Park Community Outreach. Hi, Jeffrey. Great to meet you.
8: Hi, Vassy, Thank you for inviting me this afternoon. Thank you very much.
1: No problem. I'm so, I'm so happy to have you here. Tell us a little bit about uh, what Gore Park Community Outreach is and what you do.
8: We, we were actually born out of the COVID lockdown. And uh, there was a call out for frontline health workers, volunteers. And, you know, me and five of my friends, we just decided, you know, to take up the challenge and help people within our community. Uh, Not knowing that we were just going to do it for eight weeks, knowing that COVID will be over. Uh, Not knowing that that almost two and a half years later, and with 130 volunteers and serving over 800 people every week, uh, this has become a real, uh, a, a great story about people caring
1: for one another. That is a wonderful story. Tell us a little bit about, so, so my understanding is basically all week, you and 100 volunteers, you pick up donations, you cook meals ahead of Saturday, which is when uh, you're able to help out a number of guests. I think this, this Saturday you had a record 810 people.
8: That is correct, yes.
1: That's amazing. And tell us a bit about the process. How, do, how does it work?
8: So what we do is uh, we, we are a, um, uh, a non not-for-profit charity. Uh, we are strictly volunteers so we don't have any admin costs. And every week we go to stores and factories and we, we in a way we rescued food that are still good. So we, we take them, we, we sort we, we kinda you know uh, repurpose them and we share, we cook, we, we, we help as many people as we can uh, with the donations we get.
1: And uh, eight hundred and ten people, what what is the average like on a Saturday?
8: The, the average, uh, this time last year, just to, to put matters in context, we were serving around 350.
1: And what do you attribute to the um, increase? Is it, is it an increased need or, or a combination of increased need with, with an increase in capacity among you and the volunteers?
8: I think a little bit of both, but I I think, I think it's more of the hardship of our fellow Canadians right now. Uh, you know, as you know, if you listen to the news all the time, you know, things are going up, rents and everything else. So a lot of our our fellow, you know, citizens are having just having a hard time uh, putting food on the table and making both ends meet. And we were given this opportunity to, to, to be able to to be able to serve people. And we just tapped into a lot of the resources that are within our community anyway uh, that would otherwise go to landfill. So we, we basically, we resource it, repurpose it. And we're able to, you know, to create something, um, you know, basically just <laughs> out of nothing and be able to help so many people.
1: It's really amazing. How, are you surprised or, or were you over the last two and a half years at the response from the places you go, for example, to to get the food or the number of volunteers that you've been able to amass?
8: You know, I, I, I'm amazed every single week because I always believe in the power of the kindness and compassion of people. And every week we always have volunteers that basically steps up to say, what can we do? Even even when we go to the stores and factories, right? And if we tell them exactly what we were doing, you know what? I cannot thank all the people enough because, you know, a lot of the times, and in all fairness, we, we, we hear a lot of not so good news, right?
1: Yeah.
8: but But I think, in this particular case, and the story here is not so much, you know, people, there's so many people ha- having needs. I think the story here is the power of people, you know, just total strangers helping one another. And, and I think that that's just simply amazing.
1: Has it changed your life to see that? Absolutely. absolutely. I, I was in the corporate world for 30 years.
8: <laughs> I, I stepped away because I want to spend more time with my family because I was traveling so much. Uh, you know, uh, a, a one month basically vacation turned into this lifelong uh, of service, and you know what? I I I'm enjoying myself because I'm I'm learning new things about myself, about my fellow Canadians, and above all, I'm learning that how wonderful how wonderful we are as a community, helping one another. There are great people out there. Um, we have 130 volunteers each and every week that just helps out selflessly, and I, I you know, I, I, I'm just humbled by this whole thing.
1: And and what is the week like from your perspective? Like, do you figure out the meals and do you coordinate all that stuff? Because that's I know you left the corporate world, but that sounds like a pretty busy, pretty pretty busy job in of itself.
8: Well, you know, it's funny thing; it's a lot tougher right now because when I was in the corporate world, I have staff, right? So you can kind of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of instruct people to do things but this thing is different this is this is all volunteer work yeah it gets pretty busy it's a seven day uh uh, seven day a week work for me right now uh we go where the donations are sometimes you know it could be at night sometimes on the weekends but you know what it's a labor of love And, and 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 another thing that i always always say to people you know the best part of what i do is what i call the journey of discovery you get to so many wonderful people
1: and and even I imagine um, on Saturday when uh, you, you have your guests who who are there, you must meet some pretty amazing people then too.
8: Absolutely, absolutely and, and, and you know what though, you know friends, I, I, I always say to people, you know, we, we, we serve people from all walks of life. Uh, when we first started, we were just gonna serve just the, the you know, the, the displaced people uh, during COVID, right? Uh, people that doesn't have place doesn't have a place to call home. Uh, but today, 80% of the people we serve are seniors, uh, family with kids, uh, refugees, immigrants, uh, people with some physical disabilities, uh, students, like from like, like basically post-secondary students. And and even people on the street, you know what, they're all really, actually, they're all very decent people. Uh, and just because I always say, just because somebody is, is kind of living outdoors, uh, they're not to be kind of, you know, feared upon. And most of them are actually quite, they're just regular people like you and me.
1: I imagine you also go to great lengths to make everyone feel welcome when they yeah. are. It's not easy to ask for help. And I imagine that part of this is, is making it as easy as possible.
8: Absolutely. And and the catalyst here, actually, you know, when we were going to stop at eight week, um, a lady actually came forward and basically just tapped me on the shoulder, and and she was totally embarrassed. You can kind of tell because she wasn't looking. She, she wasn't looking at me. She was just kind of looking at the ground, right? And she said, "Do you have any food left over?" And I said, "As a matter of fact, yes, ma'am. We have some leftovers." And you know, I said, "We have soup. We have this, and 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 so on and so forth." And the next thing she said to me was, "I have no money to pay you." Mm-hmm. And when she looked up, that was the only time she looked up at me. And, and you know what? I was shocked because she was giving bones. Wow. And so, you know, I, I, that that has a really big impact on me. And so we, we we made a conscious decision. You know what? Instead of just saying, hey, look, you know, we're wrapping this thing up in eight weeks. We're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go for another eight weeks and see what happens. Uh, not knowing that, that two and a half years wow. later, we're doing it, and you know what, I I I enjoy every single day. It's a lot of hard work, but you know what? At the end of the day, it's very humbling. It's very humbling because you know we're able to help uh, a lot of people, wonderful people, decent people, and at the same time, get to meet a lot of new friends.
1: I bet. Well, Jeffrey, I can't thank you enough for making the time to share your experience with us and for all that you do for your community in Hamilton and all the volunteers as well. A big uh, hearty thank thanks from all of us here at the Vashi Capello Show. Appreciate it, Jeffrey. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Jeffrey Ng is the Executive Director of Gore Park Community Outreach. He and more than 100 volunteers, as you heard there, every week shop and put together meals and groceries for this Saturday. It ended up being over 800 people in Hamilton. We are back with a fact check on the program right after this. Stay tuned.
0: Welcome back to the Vashi Capello show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
1: Ten minutes before the top of the hour, and it is time for our fact check. Fact check. All right, I'm going to start off with the situation in Quebec. We interviewed uh, the head or the vice president, rather, of the Association of Doctors who work in emergency rooms. They've recently sent a letter to the province's health minister, Christian Dubé, outlining what they say is a, a critical situation right now. They say that the situation, in fact, in ERs across the province is, quote, out of control, uh, I'll add some statistics to uh, basically what has been laid out. In particular, Dr. Lacombe, who is on our program, highlighted the situation in and around Montreal. In Montreal, the st- stretcher occupancy rate at the Jewish General Hospital was 206% as of Sunday afternoon. The Royal Victoria Hospital was at 179%, and the Lakeshore General Hospital at 168%. In the Laurentian region of the province, the Mont-Laurier Hospital occupancy rate was 220 while the Barry Memorial Hospital uh, in a different region was at 200%. That's just to give you a sense of basically where things are at. Uh, I also wanted to point out to you that the uh, health minister has released a statement around that letter saying that the minister is visiting, quote, several Quebec ERs right now to meet with staff. The ministry said in its response it's working to improve coordination between different health care departments. It also says Bill 15 will enhance patient care across the province. Now, ironically, Bill 15, uh, Dr. Lacombe, whom we spoke with, said has been such a focus for the government for the last number of months that it has come at the expense of the kind of attention – Doctors and nurses and healthcare staff want the government to pay to the situation in ERs, which they say has been bad for a while, but has been particularly worse over the last number of weeks. Curious, Dr. Lacombe, on that.
3: You know, it's it's been bad for months on end and even a year, but uh, in the last few months, it's really got worse. And now we've seen in the last few weeks... Uh, we've seen cases of patients dying in our waiting rooms, uh, which were actually covered in the media. And the situation is not good. And uh, a lot of people were wondering what was actually being done by the government at this moment to address the situation.
1: So I pointed out in that interview with Dr. Uh, Guillaume Lacombe that, you know, a number of provinces are dealing with big issues in ERs. And from my experience kind of interviewing people in those provinces, there are two reasons informing the delays and the the lack of uh, available care. One is people are sick and there's a lot more of them, but two is it's very difficult to find um, somewhere to go other than the ER that a, a lot of time, and I've certainly had this experience with my own son He's sick enough that he needs to be seen, but there's, like, nowhere to take him. The family doctor isn't working or doesn't have any availability or the hours are very, uh, you know, limited to a certain part of the day. And there's not really anywhere you can go for walk-ins or urgent care. There's a select amount of places, but not enough to deal with with the full population and and the fullness with which they are feeling their illnesses. And so they end up in the ER. And that is something Dr. Lacombe says he's seeing in Quebec as well.
3: So a lot of people decide to go to the ER because they can't find access somewhere
1: else. But according to Dr. Lacombe, that's not the only reason that the ERs are so overcrowded. The other issue is basically the beds in those hospitals being full to the max.
3: But the other problem is most of the hospitals, mainly in Montreal and around the city, are actually full. So, you know, if the hospital right. has no more beds, what happens is that the patient in the ER waiting to get admitted, admitted, they will be waiting in the ER longer.
1: And here's Dr. Lacombe on how that situation is impacting the morale of doctors and nurses and all the healthcare staff working in ERs right now.
3: When you're doing your best and you feel that even by doing your best, you cannot uh, cure everyone or you cannot do as much as you would like, that's very frustrating for everyone.
1: So we will continue to watch the way in which the government responds. As you heard from the statement from the health ministry, the health minister, Dubé, is visiting. Uh, that ministry says uh, various ERs right now, so we'll look to see if there's anything more specific that the government offers over the coming hours and days, and of course, share it with you on our program. I also want to do a fact check on what you heard from the Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie. I'll start off just by mentioning that the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, is in Israel as we speak. He uh, gave a press conference alongside his Israeli counterpart, uh, and he talked about the U.S. push to bring home more hostages being held by Hamas.
8: The United States will keep pushing relentlessly for the safe return of hostages in Gaza. And we will continue to help Israel in its efforts to bring
5: them all home.
1: Now, unlike Canada, which voted in favor of the U.N.'s resolution last week to support an immediate ceasefire, the U.S. voted against that resolution. It is strongly allied with Israel. However, at the same time, we've seen a real evolution of the way in which us president joe biden is addressing what is going on and in particular he described the air campaign in gaza by israel as indiscriminate bombing last week and he also said that if that bombing were to continue as he described it as indiscriminate that there would be a there, there is the potential for a loss of support in the international community uh, to that end lloyd austin the secretary of defense also spoke about the us Uh, insistence and pursuit of a two-state solution.
8: So the United States continues to believe, as we have under administrations of both parties, that it is in the interest of both Israelis and Palestinians to move forward toward two states, living side by side in mutual security.
1: I'll just quickly point out uh, in the way of a fact check that the most recent public opinion polling in both uh, of both Palestinians and Israelis showed just about a third of each are supportive of the idea of a two-state solution. And then, in fact, throughout this uh, this conflict in the Middle East, opposition to a two-state solution in both Israeli and Palestinian communities has increased. Here is Israel's uh, defense minister speaking about the IDF's plans going forward.
2: Israel will not control Gaza in, in any civilian way. We will conduct any, any needed uh, uh, operation and military effort in order to secure our future.
1: So as I mentioned, Canada took a different position than it has in the past in making that vote for a ceasefire. The UK and Germany are now also both calling over the weekend for a sustainable ceasefire. I spoke with the foreign affairs minister about how she arrived at that position after you know weeks of of not, and and more specifically, I asked if she thought Israel was breaching international law and if that informed. Uh, the Canadian position at the UN. Uh, Here's a little
4: bit of Melanie Jolie. We stood up, and we still do, in terms of uh, supporting Israel's right to defend when being attacked. But how it does so matters. And the protection of civilians is extremely important. I've had difficult conversations with my counterpart on this very issue.
1: And when I pushed the minister on the substance of those difficult conversations and whether she does believe Israel has breached international law, here's what she said
4: think that more needs to be done. We're at, now, at this point nearly at 19,000 civilians, mainly women and children, 70% being women and children that have been, uh, that, that have died.
1: I also asked the minister about listing the IRGC, which is an arm of the Iranian military, as a terrorist entity to follow suit with the United States. And of course, at the ask of the Uh, families of the victims of PS 752. They have all asked the government now for a number of years, and those calls have been amplified through the conflict in the Middle East to do so. She didn't rule it out, but she said there might be more to come next year. I'll leave our program there. I'll see you same time, same place tomorrow. Have a wonderful afternoon.